some big news this is our first episode being hosted by splicetoday.com so if you're listening to this via splice today scope these articles i think it's a real tight site and i'm amped to be in the mix got a real good episode to set it off with dan deacon dan and i sort of earned our musical stripes together earlier in our lives i think he's a real smart dude and i think this was a real tight interview i want to remind everyone that my new album comes out january 31st it's going to be called talk singer and i'm really goddamn excited about it it's going down at the wind-up space this release party so get with it as always This went down at the lineup room, a recording and mixing studio located in Baltimore, Maryland. Check them out at lineuproom.com. Mike Riley killed it with yet another classic rap album cover homage for this episode. Check him out at mikerileycomics.com. Let's go in. Uh, I grew up in Babylon, Long Island, Yeah, which is like quintessential Long Island suburbs in some ways, but also very, like, I don't know, different and weird. Um, Like, my graduating class was 100 people, even though it was a public school. So Mm. I didn't know that, like, uh, most public schools are, like, huge, like, tons and tons of people. Um, Or even, like, that private schools where I just assumed that, like, oh, you know when you're a little kid, like, your only reality is the reality that you see? Yeah. And it's not like on Saved by the Bell. It's like, our graduating class is, like, 1,500 people. Like Yeah. So it felt like a lot like that where it's like, and I was the only Dan in my grade. And I think there's like one Dan like a year older and I don't know any younger Dans. So I thought Dan was like, not a rare name, but like I knew like (laughs) 10 Daves and five Matts and all these Toms. And then like, so the day I started college, I started hearing everybody like, hey Dan, what's up Dan? Hey Dan. And I was like, everyone's got, everyone's fucking named Dan. (laughs) Sort of like shattered my reality in a lot of ways. Um, so then I went to SUNY Purchase, which was like a small, uh, arts and liberal arts school in Westchester County. So it was like just far enough away from the city where you felt like you were in the woods, but you could like take a train there. Yeah. But, um, I didn't have a car, like I've never learned to drive. So I was kind of always trapped there. And luckily there were a lot of other like weirdos there. I feel like that's where I really like found my voice and realized like that I one wanted to be a musician. And that I was pretty much going to always be poor my whole life, so I might as well not study anything of, like, practical value. Mm. Like, if I was, like, going to school and taking out all these loans, like, it's not like I was going to, like, go anywhere with my, like, degree in, like, drama studies or, like, yeah. theater arts. And I wasn't going to, like, transfer and start studying, like, medicine or law because I would just be a terrible doctor and I don't want to be a lawyer. Um and I just, you know, I didn't want a job, you know what I mean? I was yeah. like 21 and I was like, I'm going to work. If I'm going to like, if I'm going to take out all these loans, I might as well 
risk it all. Do you know what I mean? And like just dive into music. So I did. Um, I was also obsessed with the concept of the apocalypse. And I was like, oh, well, the world's going to end and solve all my problems anyway. So yeah. I've got nothing to worry about. And then we moved to Baltimore and that really like reestablished like the concept of the apocalypse happening. And uh, pretty much immediately after moving here, I feel like I started touring predominantly with you. I feel like, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, you and Mick were like the ones that I toured with like constantly. Yeah. And it really like, I fell in love with touring. I never knew like of that lifestyle. And I know like you guys did it like earlier on in life, like with the Wounds tours. Right, and, right, right. But it was very, very new to me. I didn't know about like the American underground and like, I'd been to like, like on Long Island, like all of the shows were in like VFW halls or like Moose Lodges, um, bars that were like open during the day, like churches, shit like that. There were like punk and hardcore shows in houses, but I, that those scenes never fit my taste or like spoke yeah. to me. So I never really went to them. Um, so to like play a show in a basement of a house was very, very bizarre to me and, yeah. and cool. And I, I mean, I'd been to like warehouse spaces. Like I played like in a weird sideband at like Fort Thunder, and that like when I was in, I was either in high school or a freshman in college, and I'd never been to a place like that before in my life. And it, like, I really like idolized it and fantasized about it. And I yeah. remember going to a place the first time and being like, "But they live here? But this isn't a home. Like, this isn't like built as a home." Yeah. And it just like it was like a paradigm shift in the way I thought about like what you could. Do. do you know what I mean? It was very freeing and liberating to be like, well, yeah, they used to make like chairs here and now 15 people live here and do whatever they want. Yeah. I was thinking recently about how crazy it is, like from my perspective, like going up there and meeting you guys. And then it's like you're all still kind of doing it, it together in some ways. In some capacities, yeah. But it's just like it's just like such a common like college thing to be like, you do the art. Oh Jason yeah, yeah. Does the videos mm-hmm. like, and we're gonna, like, <laughs> you know, it's like, it, I don't know. It's yeah. wild being like, oh, that, well, that was all real in a way. <laughs> yeah, I've never thought about it like that, but it is, especially now that like different people, like how Alan and Ben and like, Wham City Comedy is getting more like attention. It's like, yeah, it is cool. To, and like Dina for her comics and yeah. like Jimmy for his fine art. Like it, it's, it, it is really weird how it was just sort of like, the little rascals grew up and they just. Never stopped. Yeah. Which would have been am- amazing if, if, like, the actual Little Rascals were, like, imagine, like, six-year-old Little Rascals, like, playing with, like, a dog with, like, a circle painted on its face. <laughs> That's my dream. It always blows my mind that you, like, convinced, like, these, like, 20 people or something to, <laughs> to move to Baltimore. I think it was a... I think it was a mixture of um, the lifestyle we were living when we moved here because it was really crazy. Like yeah, we were, and our rent was so cheap that like we could afford to do that. Like, it was like one hundred and eighty dollars a month to live yeah. in a copycat at the time. We had so much space, and we were constantly throwing parties. And it felt like we just took the same energy that we had, but we were still producing a lot of work. Yeah, um, which is the whole reason I wanted to move to Baltimore is because if I moved to Brooklyn or if I moved to I don't know basically anywhere else, I wouldn't have been able to dedicate hours and hours of my day to my practice. Yeah, you know what I mean. So without that, I would have slipped out of it and fallen into other routines. I would have gotten into, like, Xbox or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Because um, I, I lived in New York for one summer before uh, my last year of school, and I was just constantly working. Like, I was just, like, one of those 
dickheads on the street that was like, do you have a second for Greenpeace? Where we just try to, did you ever hear this story? No, no. Oh, I think you're going to, lo- all right. Uh, so anyway, so I'm, it's, I can't remember what summer it was, but I'm living in Washington Heights. Um, so it takes like an hour to get anywhere. And I have nowhere near them. And I realize I'm never going to have enough money to live in Brooklyn or lower Manhattan. It's just never going to happen. And uh, so I get this job working for Greenpeace. And you have you get like 60 bucks a day no matter what. So pretty decent paycheck there. Mm. And um, But you have to get two people to sign up a day to like donate to Greenpeace monthly. And then you get 40 bucks for each person you get. And you have to get two. And if you go two days with nobody, you're just immediately fired. Um, so the job sucks. It's almost impossible to get anyone to sign up. The third day I'm there, I start realizing like, that this makes no money for Greenpeace. This is just sort of like a weird like job farm. Like the only people who are making money are like the management who mm. are like, because like the amount of money it takes to like employ me and like rent the office and everything like that has got to be drastically more than the campaign itself. Oh, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's it's just a way to get like Greenpeace logos. And I don't even have a green, I'm like, they're at an extra large Greenpeace shirt. So I'm just wearing a yellow t-shirt on the street being like, hey, will you sign up for Greenpeace? And they're like, where's your shirt? And I was like, um, too fat. <laughs> uh, please give me your credit card information. And they're like, go away. And like everyone else, they're like these like British like people like vacationing there that have they're like charming the fuck out of everyone. Mm. And I'm like picking my nose and eating it, which is another story we'll get into maybe later. And uh, I gave it up. 2005 resolution. That's um. Right. Anyway, so uh, I realize I hate this job and I don't want to do it anymore. But every um, every other Friday, there's a pizza party in Penn Station at uh, Ray's. And I really want this this pizza. But I also know I'm going to quit. And I was like, that's, that's fine. Uh, I'll just get fired. I'll get fired on Friday. I'll go to the pizza party. It'll be my last hurrah. And then I'll go to this... Uh, I wanted to go to the early show for the Oops Tour. That was Lightning oh, Bolt, yeah. The Locust, Avon Radar, Orthrum, all those bands. Um, and I knew I was going to... I didn't want to, like, work the next day. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I'll just get fired. It'll be great. So um, I go two days, day one, I go in, I just like go to borders and like jerk off in the bathroom or all day. And then I go back and I'm like, did you get anybody? And I was like, no. And they're like, well, tomorrow, if you don't get anybody, we're going to have to let you go. And I was like, you got it. So same thing, borders, whatever. Um, and I go back and I'm like, did you get anybody? I was like, no. And they're like, well, we're going to have to let you go. And I was like, I understand. Um, so they're like, well, if you could just stick around, I got to fill out some paperwork. Um Yada, yada, yada. So everyone's leaving. They're like, oh, we'll see you at the party. See you there. They don't know that I've, I'm about to be fired. <clears throat> so it's just me and the manager now. And he's like, um, well, since you're no longer an employee here, you can't go to the pizza party. And I was like, what? Really? I've been here for two weeks. This will be my first pizza party. He's like, <laughs> yeah, I can't let you do it. And I was like, well, there's people whose first day it was, and they're going to the pizza party. And he's like, yeah, I just can't let you do it. You don't work here anymore. And I was like, fine, fine, whatever. So I leave. And I go, it's right across the street from Penn Station. So I go into Penn Station and I have to take the A train home anyway. And I see the pizza place and everyone's in there. And they're all like waving at me to get my attention to get me to come in. And uh, so I go in and they just got the pizzas. And there's like three pizzas there in boxes. And I was like, instinctively, I was like, oh, hey, uh, there's a bunch of new people outside. I'm going to go bring them the pizza and bring them back here. And they're like, what? And I just picked up the pizzas and they're like, I'll be right back. And I just stole all the pizzas and left. Yes. And then uh, <laughs> <it was laughs> I can only imagine. And it was, then I uh, got on the train and there was this uh, 
homeless guy sitting next to me and I gave him a pizza and I told him the story and we were just laughing our asses off eating pizza and he was like, that's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. I fucking hate those kids. <laughs> uh, so sorry, Greenpeace, but uh, your middle management really should have let me go to that pizza party. Yeah, I think. I just w- I just love thinking about like the moments afterwards being like, where's where'd Dan go with the pizzas? And then like the guy who fired me come down and be like, hey everyone, where's the pizza? And they're like, Dan came and took it. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> being like, fucking asshole. So this New York is kind of like, you just realize like, this is not feasible basically. To and do like, I, I feel like it was like this, like purchase was like a farm for like Brooklyn gentrification. Like everyone was moving right from purchase to Brooklyn. Like yeah. it was like this, like final semester of school was like yeah. learning how to live in Brooklyn. And I didn't want to do it. Cause a lot of my, friends there who's like work I really respected and he used to like live this like you know non-job based lifestyle move to Brooklyn and then that's they just started having to survive yeah they started to, yeah. they needed to make enough money to pay rent and to have a metro card and to eat and all those things became things that ev- eradicated their time you know yeah, what I mean yeah so I didn't want that at all and I remember like Mickey Freeland being like move to Baltimore cheap you don't have to do that and our friend sherry chambers was like you can live in these two warehouse spaces i think they have availability and we called up and looked at them and at first we were like i thought they were going to be like enormous because i was like idiot and then i started thinking like no this is enormous like 3200 square feet is enormous yeah like that's bigger than anywhere we're going to find and uh we just went for it and i think just because of like we had some friends come down when we first did Beauty and the Beast, which was an insane first like thing to do. Was put on a musical review of Walt Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, um, probably the thing I'm most proud of artistically in my life. I thought it was really, it was awesome. really, really special. Um, I don't know, and then I think people who were still at Purchase got it, and they're like, "I understand why they live here," but I think a lot of them also didn't want to just like do the same thing. So a big crew moved to Oakland. Yeah. Um, but I feel like they had moved right at the end of, like, Oakland's scene cresting. Do you know what I mean? Like, Oakland had, like, this big wave. Totally. totally. Um, not that, like, scenes have, like, one singular wave. They happen, you know, constantly, simultaneously, slightly off phase, whatever. We want to get into this, like, how waves work. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> I think the time we moved to Baltimore was a really, like, time that was, like, ripe for experimentation and change and community. Yeah. Like I, I like I like when Tim Cabrera talks about like old Baltimore being like, well, everyone hated everything, and uh, the scenes were very divided, and there were very few bands that like bridged the scene, and then all of a sudden like there was this scene, and there yeah. was this community, and it wasn't yeah. based around any one style of music or any Sound, one group of friends. Yeah. Um, I don't know, and that seems seems cool. This is moving forward a little bit, but mm-hmm. I believe it was the release of like. Acorn Master, where I got this feeling like people were like, I'm in the copycat. Like, <laughs> like it was like a it had, place or something. Yeah, it had that vibe. And I'm, I think just because like we moved to Baltimore not knowing about the copycat's history at all. Yeah. And like I'd make, you know, I was flyering the same way I would at purchase, not knowing that like flyering was, you weren't supposed to do it. Like I remember seeing flyers for the YU and being like, where's the YU? Not knowing that it was like in the same building. Because they couldn't put the address, and it was like oh, email yeah, for yeah, information. Yeah. And uh, I was putting like 
Wham City in the copycat, 1511 Guilford Avenue, $5, right. 9 p.m. Like, and I put them all over town. Yeah. But I think the only reason it worked is because, like, the landlord, uh, Mike, was, like, a big crackhead. And I think we moved, like, mm. right at the point before he started embezzling from the land. Do you know this? No, no. But he, like, he started embezzling everyone's rent. And if you think about the amount of rent that the copycat brings in a month, <clears throat> it's got to be over 50 grand. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, all of those units, they're all, yeah. like, there's at least 25 units, and each unit is definitely, on average, I'd say $2,500. Yeah. Between the big ones and the small ones. Um, so making a fuck ton of money, and he's supposed to be depositing it into his account. He knows Lankford's never looking at Lankford's the owner. So he just starts taking it mm. and keeping the money. And um, he didn't. He knew we were having these crazy shows, but he knew we kept people off the street. That's all he cared about. Yeah. He didn't want people standing in front of the street because that meant the cops came, and if the cops came and the fire department came, they're gonna be like, "Why do you have all these?" People here. Right, right. We're right. the cops. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we would just paint over the graffiti, sweep the hallways, no remnants outside. I mean, our apartment looked like fucking, you know, dogs turned into humans and didn't know how, like, their arms worked, so it was yeah. destroyed in there. But uh, we kept the rest of the building fine, so he didn't care. So I feel like we were allowed to do these shows, and I feel like people started hearing that, like, there's this place in the copycat Wham City where you can just... Literally lose your mind. Plus, yeah. like, uh, PBR was giving us free beer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, and um, uh, I think we were supposed to, like, have a bar, but we just made a pile. It looks so awesome in a pile. So, like, we would <laughs> right, right. have this pile of beer, and, like, people would come and just, like, tear it apart. And uh, I don't know. It was a really weird, strange. And plus, all of the bands were kind of crazy. Yeah. Like, and I don't know. I, like, I go to a lot of shows now. And I feel like it's a very subdued scene. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the... I do think the cops are more strict on shutting down shows. Yeah. And I also think there's a lot... Like, the landlords are more strict. And a lot, like... I remember when I first moved to town, the H&H were where, like, you had, like, the mellow shows or the shows that were, like, for the serious. older crowd or yeah. serious. And I feel like it's back to being that, where for a time period, like, the whole warehouse scene, like, the Annex, the Copycat, and the H&H were, were wild. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like there's this, like, after hours, like, um, shit popping up. Like, I, well, there definitely is. People are putting on these, like, site-specific raves after hours. Mm. And I feel like that's, like, I don't know, a great step towards, like, yeah. Baltimore returning to this, like, wild dance music-based culture. It's weird. Like, when you say, like, putting the address and everything, it's, like, you didn't realize you're not supposed to do that, but that's probably why different people felt like they could come. And yeah, I mean, I also hate the exclusion of yeah. the underground. Like, there's sometimes like people, like friends, will post a show on Facebook, and it'll be like, "It's at the dog park," right. and I'll be like, "Where's the dog park?" <laughs> like, I feel like a lot of people don't want to ask because yeah. you know, you know, everyone in their life has been told by some smarmy, esoteric nine-year-old, like, "You have to ask; you'll never know." You yeah. know what I mean? And that those. It sucks to feel like an outsider. It especially sucks to feel like an outsider within your own community. Yeah. But I feel like a lot of people get off on that. A lot of people like being like, I have this esoteric knowledge of where the dog park is, and right. that makes me feel like I'm superior in some capacity. Right, right. And I feel like the more obscure the music, the more people want to take ownership of it and not allow outsiders to penetrate. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's also important to remember that at some point, you didn't know about it. And if you... 
made it, you wanted people to know about it. Right. And right. if you only wanted a certain population of people to know about it, that's fucked. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I can understand you don't want, like, bros going to your, like, performance art drone show who are going to be like, put on the fucking chili peppers. Right, I mean, right. nowadays, I'm sure, like, there are shows where it's just like, well, we're going to have this performance art piece, and then we're going to listen to the first chi two Chili Peppers records. Um, I don't know, but I've always hated the, like, esotericism of the underground and yeah. wanted it to be, like, a place where, like, because I feel like I would have been that. Like, I grew up on Long Island, and I didn't know about, like, the weirdest band I ever heard on Long Island was Mr. Bungle. You know yeah. what I mean? And I really, like, lucked out by stumbling into weird culture or the underground. Yeah. And I think, it, like, in a lot of ways, like, saved my life. I feel like there's a lot of people who are like junior accountants somewhere where if they heard like the Boredoms or Mersbau or fucking, I don't know, anything, they'd be yeah. like, this is what I've wanted to hear my whole life. Yeah. And then like going to see a band like, I don't know, Ed Schrader's music beat in some basement would be like, but this is like the basement of a residential house. How are you allowing all these people into your home? Like, and, right, and right. it would break down this like false reality that this rule structure that we live in you know what yeah. I mean and there's almost like these like scene police who want to make sure that's like yeah but these guys like either one aren't like real cool or like hot or like they're not wearing like the cool clothes so I don't really want them in my house or yeah. they're not like legitimately actually crazy right because like <laughs> when you're in your 20s and crazy it's like really cool but when you get in your 30s or 40s it becomes like a sadness that needs to be addressed <laughs> Yeah, I think there used to be a thing where the idea of like weirdos or freaks mm -hmm. used to have a more like respected place in society or something. Like, like I I, I remember reading like MC Five and like the Stooges. They were like plugged into some system where they were playing at like high schools and middle schools. Yeah, like, those videos of them playing those venues blows my mind. Yeah, like it used it used to be more like, all right, now these guys are gonna do some completely insane shit. <laughs> like, it's just like I don't like it, but maybe you will. Is it but I wonder if that was like and after the show is like, and you'll never book a show here again. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I wonder possibly. Yeah, maybe Because they, they just weren't like those bands pre predated like the the scene that like you know all of the our band could be your life bands like the yeah. black flag paving the way between like making like a network of venues for like obscure bands yeah. you know what i mean i'm sure there were a lot of times where it was like well we've made a rule at the moose lodge to never allow any band like this to play <laughs> ever again right, right even though right. there are hundreds of people came right right like right. i often think about like you know, people talk about how the first sex pistols tour of like texas or the u.s was a disaster and i want to be like, well of course it was like, where would they have played? The interstate wasn't even finished being built. What You know what I mean? Like, what? where were they playing? How was it being promoted? Like, yeah. who was like, well, I've got, I've got a concert hall. We've got some cover bands coming in. These guys write all their own material. They're from England. Sounds good. Right. And then, like, a completely different group of people show up that they have no idea who they are, what they're about. And they're like, well, that wasn't a thing we'll never do again. And uh, I hate culture. This <laughs> is... Really? So I don't know if weirdos were, if, I mean, I think the thing that proves, I think we also like come from like in, we idolized a lot of like older weirdos. Yeah. And we saw, especially the ones that we were first introduced to, which would have been the more successful ones. 
But like you look at a movie like Easy Rider, and I think it's very easy to see like how difficult it was to be at all counterculture in the 60s and 70s and how there was yeah. a, a hatred. I feel like a lot of people like the 60s, you know, in, you know, for anyone of our generation or younger, it's like, oh, the 60s were like peace and love. And it was like, no, it wasn't. Everyone hated those people, like especially right. the media and anyone who felt disenfranchised by that way of life. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So they were like vehemently hated. And um, I don't know, like my dad was a hitchhiker and he's, he has a lot of stories of people being like either very nice to them and being like, that's awesome that you guys are doing this or like, get the fuck out of here. Oh, we're yeah, going yeah. to fucking kill you yeah. if you're not out of this town by nightfall. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I saw Easy Rider like, I don't know, a couple of years ago at the Charles Revival. And uh, it just blew my mind to think like how dangerous it would have been just based on like being a hippie. Maybe yeah, made me yeah. really like address my privilege too. You know what I mean? Like we go on tour and like we might have people look at us like, these guys are losers. Right, right. <laughs> but no one's going to be like, Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And that wouldn't have been like, imagine being like, I don't know, like these weird punks in like 1982. Yeah. Stopping at a deli to just to take a piss or to get lunch and have people be like, I hate you. Yeah. And then imagine what it was, what it was like to be that, but not white. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I must have, I just can't imagine being like, all right, we're going to route this tour. We're going to do five shows in Oklahoma. And, uh, (laughs) because, We have to. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I hope we can do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. It's just, it's crazy to think about how, like, the pioneering of the scene was, like, so crazy. You know what I mean? I think that's why I really loved that book, Our Band Could Be Because yeah. it was just, like, I mean, it would be great if it had a little bit more, like, diversity among, like, the bands in it. I've realized that it's all about, like, post-punk and rock bands and shit like that. What else would you want to have in it? I mean, I'd just love to hear more about, like, just non-those bands. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know anything yeah. about, like, the forging of, like, the early, like, club music scene or, like, yeah, yeah. hip-hop culture in any capacity. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure these books exist, but yeah. since I read zero books a year, <laughs> I'm very ignorant of them. I'll lend you Yes, Yes, Y'all. Cool. Which I, I would say is the, our band could be your life of, of rap. I'm pumped. But yeah, yeah, like. Like, imagine being, a, like, Bikini Kill. Like, can't you imagine somebody being like, I can't believe you ladies are dressed like this and living this lifestyle and be like, well, I'm also starting like a whole new wave of feminism. Right, 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 right. I'm doing it because you can't tolerate me. <laughs> That's the whole reason we are need to do this. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's also so, I'm sorry, I keep cutting no, you off. No, no. It's go. so easy to forget like how, I feel like every every five years people forget what it was like five years ago or they just don't know because they were like 13 five years ago yeah. you know what i mean like to think of like how people in i moved into the copycat and i was like oh we're really starting something here and this is great not knowing like this has been happening since the fucking 80s do you know mm. what i mean yeah and it's i think it's very easy for like there's no real there's very few documents about the underground and how it moves and i feel like people are constantly reinventing the wheel do you know what i mean yeah so it's it's easy to forget the people who actually like Think about the scene as like a thick forest that you need to turn into farmland. Yeah. So first you need to like find the forest and they need to like fell the trees and they need to get rid of the trees and they need to like till the land so it can become dirt and they need to plant the dirt and they need to make a a growable crop and then you need to like take down the crop and sell the crop. And like each one of those steps 
is a whole generation of bands or at least a whole at least five years of just like developing it and it could fall apart at any moment like yeah how certain cities fall off the map because like a few key promoters stopped living there or yeah. the cops changed or anything do you know what i mean or yeah. like a new highway was built that made it easier to just skip over that city so a scene right. just dis- dissolves um, yeah who knows so it's, it's crazy to just think that it evolved in this capacity at all and i wonder how like you know a lot of people talk about how the internet like helps underground music and i feel like people are starting to realize more and more that obviously it does but two that it it's changed touring culture quite a bit like i feel like more and more like young bands who like have no records out not that that's important to have recorded music but are um before they've done any touring to be like how do i get a booking agent or a manager and i want to be like well you you tour a lot for a long time and they're like yeah yeah but like how do I how do I get them? Right, <laughs> it's right. like, well, the, and I don't know if that's even the way you do it anymore. And I feel like we came up post that like like DIY American hardcore influenced way of touring that like permeated our way of thing. Where it's like, well, you get a van and you go on the road and you go on the road. You do a hundred shows a year yeah. for X number of years. And I still think you do have even doing that not only to just get known but to like hone your craft. Um, yeah, because the more you play just in your hometown, the easier it is to like get lazy without realizing it. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think that the hardest part for me was going on tour and having people be like just staring at you, just yeah. being like, "Who? Who? Why did you come here?" Yeah, I paid yeah. five dollars to figure out why you came here. <laughs> so, <laughs> please fucking show me. Yeah, um, I'm really here just to see my friends who are forced to play last, and I'm enduring watching. You. <laughs> right, so right, please. Right. For the love of God, entertain me. <laughs> right, right. And that's different. So when you play only in your hometown and it's only friends, they'll be like, yeah, all right, you're doing this stupid thing. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. I'm having fun anyway. Bah, bah, bah. Um, and you, when you can learn how to, I mean, I guess I'm coming at it from someone whose goal is to entertain, but I feel like if you're performing and you're on stage, let's get real, you're an entertainer. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we really were all artists, not entertainers, but. Can't see it. <laughs> so, uh. <laughs> It forces you to think about your work and how you present it and how you can make it work. Yeah. You know I mean, how you can make it like successful night after night in a venue that's like, oh, yeah, well, there's a lizard show next door, so you can't play that loud. And uh, <laughs> I'm also, you know, I sell drugs out of the kitchen. <laughs> and yeah. that, people are going to be coming in, they're going to be scared and angry the whole night. Yeah. But there's a potluck. So have a good time. <laughs> Other than the lizard show, like that actual scenario, I know has happened to both of us. <laughs> A lizard show? No, other than the lizard show. What would a lizard show be? Like a like a bunch of lizards and like little booths with like lizards and shit. <laughs> An expo. Yeah, yeah, a lizard expo in the living room and you're playing in the basement. Like DIY animal shows would be the worst. <laughs> the saddest, saddest show. Horrible. But like I remember you telling me one time you, you kinda had a moment where your act you had like your first good show, kind of mm-hmm. like. Do, do you remember talking about this? Like, in do you mean the one in Baltimore? Or I think it was in in at purchase or something. But you were talking about being like, like dan- like starting to like dance around all crazy and everything, and being like, oh, people are yeah, connecting. I, when I think I, do that or I think it was. Oh yeah, it was. I, I thought you were talking about a different story, but yeah, I would start the show really mellow, and then I would start dancing really hard, and it like kind of like. 
losing my mind. And I think the first time it happened was out of frustration because like, yeah. and I think it was, it wasn't a purchase. It was after I left because I purchased, it was the same thing I was talking about before was I was playing just to my friends. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah, a very yeah. insular community. And I would even play in New York city. It'd be all with purchase bands or so purchase. People would go. Yeah. So I wasn't really playing to like, so, I mean, it's good to have like a supportive fostering community Yeah, to have, to let you like experiment and like, Take risks that you wouldn't otherwise be able to take or make decisions that like if you were self-conscious, you wouldn't make in front of strangers. So I think that it's that was a really good environment for me to like figure out my voice and to find like a weird way of doing things that was unique to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I remember going on tour and, and being like, people aren't dancing. Like, what am I going to do? And then like, I think out of frustration, I was just dancing so, I was just moving my body so frantically and hard. And then I noticed people started like really paying attention more. And by the second song, they, they were dancing. Yeah. And I think a lot of it had to do with just disarming the audience and being like, there's no reason to feel uncomfortable dancing because I look like such a jackass. Yeah. yeah you know what yeah. I mean? And, and like, not even that, that wasn't my goal to look like a jackass, but it was like, I feel like a lot of people feel self-conscious about dancing because they don't want to look like an idiot. Yeah. Um, I think then that really informed my work because I, I liked to dance, but I hated dance music. Like, and I didn't hate dancing because I didn't like the music, but I hated going to a dance club or a dance party because I never thought of myself as like sexy. You know what I mean? I just oh, wanted yeah, to have yeah. fun. Yeah. And it, it's fun to dance and it's fun to go to a party and dance. But the moment it becomes like, I can remember going to like uh, school dances and yeah. it, it was basically like, and this is where I like sit with my dork friends when we watch like the lacrosse team grind on uh, the girls in chorus. You know what I mean? It was like, right, right. And this is where we realized that we would be like, you know, killed in the Middle Ages by these <laughs> future knights. Um, so I never identified with that scene at all. And I think that's why, like, my introduction to dance music was like, they might be giants or Arabon Radar, like these bands that like wouldn't be dance music, but that me and my friends would dance to. Yeah, Do you know what yeah, I mean? Totally. So, or even like Devo or the Talking Heads, like. Uh, it was just like non-sexy dance music and like not that I would ever like put that on a flyer it's like are you like the least sexual person on earth come have a good time yeah but uh, I do think that was the goal the goal was to let people know like you can dance to this but you don't have to worry about anyone like putting you in any sort of like category like it's just fun it's fun to move your body and yeah. it's fun to be lost in the moment I think that's why people like going to clubs any sort of club or any style yeah. of dance is about being ex out of your mind and, and into your body in a certain yeah. way. And it's, it's, and it's fun to do that with other people. And I think that's why it's so linked to sexuality is because you're dancing with another person and then you have this connection and all of a sudden it becomes like, oh, this is fucking creepy. So it was fun to make a style of music that would, especially like touring like these noise shows, like being after a set where someone's just like, <laughs> and there's all this pent up energy in the room, but like yeah. no one's moving. And then the moment you like drop a beat, or, like, move your body, people, like, want to release that energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Does that make any sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. But I remember, like, and that was my whole, that was, like, my set for a long time. Yeah. And then I did a show in Baltimore where people started dancing the moment I started. And I was like, what the fuck? I was, like, angry. I was like, this isn't how the show goes. It's supposed to take two songs. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, I was really thrown off, and I, like, didn't know what to do. And, um... It was actually the night, the first night before we left for the big U.S. tour, where my laptop got smashed. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I can't, I can't believe we just stacked those speakers up and didn't like 
ratchet them or bungee cord them in any capacity. Yeah. Thank God it fell on the uh, laptop and not me. Or yeah. someone in the audience. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking 75-pound speaker, seven feet in the air. Just Anyway, um, I don't know. So I think that really, like, made it possible for me to take the show on the road and, like, get people to dance yeah. night after night at these, like... Because it's easy to get a, room, a packed room of, like, you know, anywhere between 250 and 2,000 people to dance. Yeah. That's not a challenge because it's packed. Yeah. But it, getting, like, a basement, a cold basement of, like, 10 people to dance their asses off, that was challenging. You yeah. know what I mean? And I, and I really, I liked that. And when the show started getting bigger, that's when I started being like, well, I have to do something. I have to, I have to challenge them more. I, yeah. You know what I mean? So that's when I think I started adding the audience participation and, like, almost, not consciously, but stopping the dance party yeah seeing how seeing if i could stop it and keep that energy going yeah um and exercise some kind of like control over the audience or something maybe that's not the right no i don't know i've never thought about it that way but also but just to like see how the performance would go but then i think it shifted into me realizing that the uh, the show was about the audience yeah and i wanted them to be the show yeah like i remember ryan kidwell saying at one point like i don't want the audience looking at me i want them looking at themselves yeah. And I feel like he does make a very sexual dance. I mean, his name is fucking sex. Yeah. So I feel like we make electronic music from very different goals, but we both realize that the audience is our band. Like, there's no right. reason to watch someone making electronic music. Like, it's not even like, oh, watch how he hits this button. Like, you know, like when so you watch someone like doing like a set and they like pull their hand up real fast and they like <laughs> yeah, yeah. go into these moves as if there's like any sort of like physicality to the instrument. Yeah. Um, I think we realized that like the performance of electronic music largely revolves around the audience. Yeah. And the audience is pivotal to that. So if I could shift the focus from me to the audience and the audience is looking at themselves, it really changes every aspect of the audience, like the psychology of the audience, the psychology of the performance, like changes the, the room. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I think it did start with me being like, well, how, how far can we take this show? Like yeah. what, what can we do? What, and then it, I think it really just became like, I want the audience to be the show. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. This is more like on the negative side, but I, <laughs> I thought it was so tight. Like I remember the the show we played in College Park, a house show. It was like the last show of one of these tours. My man Brandon came with some kind of heckle, and you you were just like. Ha ha ha, or something, and like, <laughs> and like made like an insane like off time loop of that that just went on. But it was just like ha 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 ha. <laughs> I I don't know. I have I, no memory. <laughs> I could see me doing it. Me and Gabri still quote it. To this day. <laughs> like on some like so funny. I forgot to laugh. Kind of. Uh, but, but like, <laughs> no, I felt like at that time you were developing like all these like stage moves or something mm-hmm. for like, for like, you did have to be ready for anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause it, it was a very vulnerable performance. Like I was really, if you want the audience to feel like, you know, completely uninhibited, you have to be that way yourself. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And all it takes is one person to be like, everyone here sucks. I'm taking pictures, <laughs> like for everyone to instantly be like, "I hate my life." Yeah. Um, and also, like when you're 
when you add any element of humor to a performance, there's always someone in the audience being like, oh, I'm going to tell the funniest fucking joke when he's done being loud. Yeah, And then that yeah, joke yeah, is yeah, just yeah. like, you suck! <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And then afterwards they'll be like, that was cool, right? Did you yeah. like when I yelled, you suck? Because I thought it would be hilarious. Yeah. Or, or I just yelled like, HBO! <laughs> um, and I feel like the true masters of shutting down these hecklers is obviously Grand Buffet. Yeah. Like, in it, the, wor- the worst hecklers, though, are the positive hecklers. The hecklers who don't realize they're heck Like, a negative heckler you can shut down because you can just, like, drill a hole into their brain with yeah. just, like, you know, these sh- shutdown comments. Yeah. But the positive hecklers are the ones that's like, I love you! <laughs> I love this song! <laughs> like, in between songs. Because like, I talked a lot. And, like, yeah. that's when I think I really was connecting with the audience and m- having it be this, like, surreal experience. Yeah. And, it, like, if I'm talking about, like, you know, Garfield infinitely dividing into, like, more Garfields and these, like, mandalas of Frasier or whatever, it would just take one person and be like, I love Frasier! Oh, baby, I hear the blues. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and for me to be like, all right, cool, thanks. Because you don't want to be like, shut up, you piece of garbage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, they're like, they're with you, but they don't realize it because they're like right, right, inebriated right. or crazy or something. So yeah. that, that's the hardest heckler to, to deal with is the one who's just sort of like, I'm supporting you. I'm destroying what I like. <laughs> yeah. If this were a restaurant, I would be insulting the food while eating it, not knowing. <laughs> I hate myself and I don't realize. Um... And that I feel like I've never, I've never overcome. Yeah. I, yeah. I now address, I, I think I try to break it to me like, like, madam, I hate to break this news to you, but you're being a positive heckler. Like, <laughs> I can tell you're supporting my performance and by wearing yeah. the shirt you bought at the last tour that you've been a fan for a long time, but I need you to stop yelling at me all the time. Yeah. Well, it seemed like there got to a point like a long time ago where it was almost like, a Dan Deacon show was like, like scary a little bit for you. Yeah, and I, I feel like I didn't realize it until afterward. Like now that I play on the stage, like looking back, it was like I can understand why stages have de- evolved over centuries. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it also became like as it became more popular, there were more people who weren't coming from that didn't have a knowledge of what the underground was. Yeah. So like I feel like when I first started, there were everyone who went like had been to a floor show before. Or yeah. had been to venues that just didn't have stages. And the people in the front knew, like, well, if I'm in the front, I need to make sure that this doesn't get destroyed. Yeah. Or, like, after, like, you know, pitchfork shit and stuff like that, people started going to shows and being like, he plays on the floor, and I'm going to destroy all his equipment <laughs> <laughs> by not doing anything. <laughs> you know? yeah. It just became this, like, squish festival. And uh, it, took a while. it took a lot of stubbornness. And I think that also feeded into me stopping the show because it was just getting too crazy. Yeah, yeah. If we yeah. went more than two songs without taking a break, it would just be like something would get unplugged or the table would collapse under people pressing on it or yeah. someone would get hurt. So that's when I started being like, I make a circle. Like, let's make as much space as we possibly <laughs> right, right. can. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, and it, I also, it stopped being about dancing and started being about just like not having enough room to dance. So you just like, Throw your body Thrash, kind of. Now that I'm playing on the stage, I feel like it's a lot more dancing. Yeah, yeah. And when yeah. a like a pit starts, I can easily like stop the track and Fugazi school them and then start <laughs> up again. Saw all you guys eating ice cream cones. I didn't really memorize that routine. 
I should also like arrange for there to be like an ice cream truck like outside <laughs> of all the venues. There'd be like four people in the audience who'd be like, I think this is like a weird Fugazi uh, outtakes inside <laughs> joke. <laughs> Real quick on that ice cream tip. Oh, like, yeah. Like, I'm sure like, you know, Donald Rumsfeld and like Gaddafi and like all these like top level dickheads like have eaten ice cream cones. Right. right. I doubt anyone's been like, you know, Rumsfeld's eating this. He's, he, you know, deep down inside, <laughs> he was once a kid too. You know, like, this, <laughs> like, but I guess an ice cream cone is a pretty disarming thing. Like, it's yeah. hard to look tough, like, licking an ice cream cone. Or, yeah. There's someone who has, like, a standard routine about how, like, you can't, you can't intimidate anyone sipping out of a straw. <laughs> like, you just look like a buffoon. Like, especially a bendy straw. <laughs> like, if, like, a mob boss was like, I'm going to kill your family and burn down your house. <laughs> like, I could definitely. I can't remember who does the routines. Now I'm just basically stealing their routine. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, something that's always been cool to me. Of all my friends that have gone on to have this like success on some level, like I feel like you kind of had the most natural success. Thanks, I man. would. I would say. Well, I made all those deals with. All of the Satans of every religion. <laughs> but you know, like, like, like you were talking about earlier, like when it's just like, yeah, they moved to Brooklyn and then they won the band lottery. Or <laughs> like, I feel like, I feel like that about some people, which is cool too, but it's yeah. just, it's not, it doesn't inspire anyone else. Mm-hmm. Well, all it does is inspire them to be like, I'm going to make homogenized music and move to this like city of, press yeah, yeah and um drain the culture that i of the smaller city that could desperately use right right, right. you know what i mean <laughs> yeah and it, I, I don't know it's like at some point yeah at some point there was like this pitchfork praise and everything but like it seemed like you kind of like slowly like grew everything like for for years before that it, yeah you know I mean? I, I, and I, I it was right at the time when like I look back on it and I like wish there were like videos or photos of it. And I get so confused because there were so many like cameras at the time. Yeah. But like if you think about it, like MySpace allowed you to have like eight photos or something. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. So like there were all these people at shows. And if you t- put a photo up, you had to take another one down. Mm. You know what I mean? And I just never thought about saving them because if at that point you thought like, well, if it's on the internet, it exists forever. Yeah. And like Flickr didn't really exist. And I don't know. Like, I've got, like, a uh, couple of rolls of film from, like, that early, like, bus tour. And then when we met back up. Yeah. Um, but I wish I had documented more, like, at all. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I feel like it was at this, like, perfect time in internet history where, like, well, one, I wouldn't have changed how the internet worked at all back then. Like, it definitely, definitely helped. Because it wasn't, like, MySpace was still, like, the Wild West. Like, it wasn't, like, you could still book shows through it and, like, discover bands. yeah. And big bands weren't on it. Like, it was just sort of like, I'm not drawing fucking MySpace. I'm fucking, I don't know, you too. Yeah, yeah. We're now, like, you can't be big on any form of social media because, I mean, you can be, but, like, there's always going to be, like, these sponsored bands. I remember when, like, MySpace started having, like, bands on the front page. Do you mm. remember that? And I was being like, this is the beginning of the end. Mm. We'll never be on the front page. And yeah, yeah. People are going to find these bands. It started, 
again, homogenized. It became like a big machine. But anyway, what am I talking about? Um, you were just talking about, I guess, documenting that. Oh time. yeah, but it was also a time where like mediums were constantly changing, and like if you had like your camera would have this like weird flash card that held like eight photos, and you needed to like hook them up into your computer, and you didn't yeah. save them. So I don't know. I I remember like there's of the few photos of the early Wham City days. There's tons of cameras, but those photos don't exist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like it was like right when people stopped taking pictures with film. Do you know mm. what I mean? And like camcorders stopped being around or they were all yeah. like weird DV tapes that sucked. So like, I feel like 10 years prior, there was more documentation of this. Like the early 90s had more documentation than the mid 2000s. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because it was this like shift in technology that like people were getting a new digital camera every year and it would be a different format and then they would throw it out or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know what made me go into that based on... Um... No, no, I understand. Like, like, what is it that you w would wish to have seen? Just like... I would just love to see photos of those early shows. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah. and like... Because I do think for, a, for some people it's like, well, yeah, you like blew up on Pitchfork. And I'd be like, right. I was like drawing like 250 people in Chicago with no publicist and uh, no booking agent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I used to draw five people there. <laughs> but I do think a lot, and that's what the grind is. That's why it's so important. And that's why I think Future Islands have blown up so big is because they used to get no love from like any media, any yeah. press at all. And then like they were packing these shows and selling out these shows. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. Like. All over, and not that they were huge venues, but that's a fucking achievement. And a yeah. just by like word of mouth and constant touring for people to be like, I'm gonna go see this band. Do you wanna see them? Yeah. And then that person doing the same thing next tour. And like, it makes me, that, and that's why, like, you know, I don't really, like I said, I don't like the, it doesn't speak to me like the music of ICP or Fish or anything like that, but like, they did the same thing in like the 90s. Yeah. Or the yeah. And, and it was just like, we're never going to get any love on the radio. We're never going to, like, Rolling Stone's never going to be like, ICP and Fish are killing it. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. But um, until they like, got so big. And now you see the same thing with Future Islands, where it's like, they put out a record, didn't get Best New Music, got pretty lackluster reviews, and then it was like, Album of the Year. And it's yeah, like, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, that's crazy. Yeah. And uh, I think it'll be a lot of people in their mind are like, well, this band had their lucky break on David Letterman. Right. And it's like, well, how the fuck do you think they got... On David Letterman. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? yeah, totally. And I also look at a lot of bands that, like, blow up before they ever have those tours, because those tours, those early tours are the most fun. Those tours where you just roll in around, like, 6 or 7 o'clock, and then, like, you have dinner, and you walk around the town, and then you play, and then you party at the house you played in, and then you yeah. sleep in, and you do it again. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I feel like for a lot of bands who are just, like, this is, like, our first album's coming out on... Matador, right, and right. We're opening for the Dipshit Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I really hope there's not a band called the Dipshit Brothers that are like, <laughs> "Why'd you diss us on Heights Podcast? <laughs> <laughs> we were gonna remix your fucking track." Um, uh, they miss out on the, the time where you really discover one your own voice and how you want to perform, and two, yeah. like the best part of the scene, which are the the local pockets, the the only part of you know you know American culture that's not homogenized is the non-mainstream culture. Right. So the moment you enter into starting in the mainstream culture, I feel like you you miss out on so much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like the equivalent of like visiting every city's like Times Square, Inner Harbor, and being like, 
I've been to I've 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 been to the Cleveland Harbor. It was amazing. Right, right. <laughs> Being right. like I didn't go anywhere that wasn't a chain store. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, and I feel like that 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 has a lot. To, I feel like Baltimore bands have that because a lot of bands in New York can be like, I tour New York, right? And right. why would I leave? Because like Pitchfork and Billboard and Brooklyn Vegan and like right, all right, of these right. writers for everything internationally reside here. Yeah. So if I play like every weekend at a different club in New York, it can be to a completely different audience, and then maybe I'll get discovered. Yeah. Which is just a different way of doing it, but I feel like it's also. I don't know, like, it's weird to find, especially, like, it's kind of like when you find a non-pilot or Flying J gas station on tour, and you're like, oh, awesome. Yeah. This is great. We're <laughs> going to buy gas from these people, and we're going to go inside, and we're going to see, like, what weird shit they have decided to stock that I haven't been looking at. Yeah, yeah. In all these same gas stations. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I feel like only a band who's been on the road would be like, I know those gas stations. <laughs> um, but even, like, you know, anyway, I was going to start talking how much I love going to the Flying J and shit. Yeah, um, me too. I bet now that like we're touring exclusively on the bus. I hope Al never listens to this until after the tour. Um, we're putting bunk like we on all my U.S. tours. We still crash at people's houses. Yeah, but I'm putting bunks in for everyone and all the bus. You remember last tour? Like there were like two or three less bunks than people. Yeah, which kind of totally sucked. <laughs> no. Yes, there was never like. I was the only one that had like a dedicated bunk. <laughs> right. Um, it's my it's my fucking bus, so I've got my back. But uh, <laughs> I never really like saw like the privilege in that. Like I was just you know blind to it, and now I'm trying to recognize that <laughs> and being like. And I remember the one time Joel was sleeping in my uh, my bunk. I was like, and he was sick, and I was like, oh no. And then he like rolled over into another area, and my brother was like, oh now Joel's on my sleeping bag, and I was like. This is what everyone else goes through every night. <laughs> that was that sucked. Um, but it also required us to find a place to sleep. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It required us that like I think we only did hotels like two or three times on that yeah. last tour. Um which I mean, like every year you get older, that gets a little bit more insane and preposterous. But it is also, you know, you it's it, you either get like the craziest people on the planet who are like Check out my lizard show, <laughs> yeah. or um, or the nicest people on earth. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I, so I also think on on that tour, which is probably like a lot of your recent tours. I I feel like we were all so like exhausted just from oh sheer amount of work, hours of yeah, you know the load in, load out, everything. That it's like I felt like there were situations where, like I remember this one house we went in where <laughs> we. There was just, like, no representative. It was, like, someone was, like, yeah, Chris says we can stay at his house. And, like, Chris just wasn't there. And a guy that <laughs> didn't know we were coming was there. And like, Do you remember this night? There was a weird dog. I slept so, on the bus a lot. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was just, like. There were a couple of times where, like, someone would come in and be, like, you have to, like, go inside so they know that we're actually with you. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be, like, oh, hello. Thank you so much. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> but like where they'd have like the bong ready and like all these beers and they'd be like, We're gonna like party and I'd be like, Yeah, enjoy the festivities, my friends. I'll be <laughs> asleep within five minutes. But it, it was just like this dude was like, uh, I guess lie down, but I'm not really sure if you guys should be sleeping in 
this yeah. house. And and like it's, just me being so tired that I was like, okay. And, like, <laughs> and just instantly falling asleep. Yeah. It's crazy that like, I don't know. Not that I like, I recognize largely that I'm like not a DIY band anymore. I have a booking agent. I have a yeah. label. I have a manager. But I do like try to keep a conscious effort of keeping it as punk as possible. Mm. And I feel like the bus lifestyle does, like the, the school bus. Like yeah. when I say bus, I think a lot of people think like these slick tour buses, but nothing could Far be from. further from the truth. <laughs> uh, and like the studio, it has no heater AC, which <laughs> in a weird way, I kind of like cling to it pridefully. Yeah, um, yeah. Although I do appreciate the studio's heat. It's very nice. Thank you. Yes. Um, but it is sort of insane to like still be sleeping on people's floors. But like hotel rooms are so expensive, especially yeah when you're riding with <laughs> if you got twelve like, dudes yeah twelve or people that's you know? like if everyone's gonna get a bed that's like six hotel rooms, or you've got to pull this like you know Marx Brothers routine to like yeah. you're like oh it's only gonna be two adults <laughs> and then like six people all wearing like the identical sweatshirt we got gifted <laughs> walk in and then they're like. Oh, I'm in a, another room. Uh, good night. <laughs> and then we all devour the uh, breakfast in the morning. <laughs> and they're just not worth it at all. Like, mm. that's like an additional 1200 And I don't want to raise ticket prices any more than I yeah. have to. Um, I don't know. And it, and like I said, it's fun to like, especially when you find someone who's down and they like will invite you into their house. Like it is, I'm trying to remember, remember the house where uh, it was in San Diego? I think you might have stayed on the bus this night. But um, we went and partied. It was like one of the one nights I wanted to sleep indoors. I don't know why, because San Diego's weather was nice. It wasn't like hot or cold. Yeah. And uh, we go to this house, and like everyone was like partying, and I was just like, oh, I just want to like go to bed. And they're like, you want to listen to music or like watch a movie? And I was like, let's watch a movie. And they're like, what movie? And I was like, Mr. Bean. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, really? And I was like. Bean, 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 bean. <laughs> and uh, they like hooked up. They're having like a hard time hooking up like the the Netflix to the PlayStation. And they're like, we could just watch like, I've got all these sick like, uh, and I was like, Mr. Bean, Mr. Bean, let's watch Mr. Bean. Knowing that the moment Mr. Bean went on, everyone would leave the room and yeah. uh, we could go to bed. <laughs> and um, within five minutes of Mr. Bean being on, like everyone who was trying to talk to like, Women was like, let's go, uh, let's get it. Or, or the women in the room were like, let's leave. And uh, it was just like me and one guy who was like genuinely watching Mr. Bean. Yeah. And he looked at me and he's like, I understand what you did. <laughs> <laughs> and then I uh, just got up and turned off Mr. Bean and turned off all the lights. <laughs> and it instantly became the room where people could sleep. <laughs> so I could suggest to anyone on the road is Mr. Bean is a great way to kill the party. Mm. And some hilarious jokes can ensue in the meantime. I remember Adam telling me one time about Wham City dudes kind of like hosting the after party slash sleeping situation for Arab on Radar. At purchase, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Dudes just being like, have you heard this like crazy noise oh, yeah, shit? Yeah. They stayed like, at my friend Keith's house. It's like, please, no. <laughs> yeah, well, they split up into two groups. Yeah. And, um... I think it was the two guitarists, like, just wanted to chill. Yeah. And the singer and the drummer went and, like, partied across the street. Yeah. I remember, like, walking across the street at one point, and they, like, had their shirts off and were, like, dancing on a table. And then I went back, and Keith was like, have you heard, like, these B-52 
fart like bootlegs? And they're like, can you put on uh, Cat Stevens? I'd love to listen to some Cat Stevens right now. <laughs> and then uh, I think Keith's like, uh, okay. <laughs> and then everyone left and went to the party and they're like, we're going to go to bed. So that's what, is that where you got the idea? I don't know. I, I am very heavily influenced by those, yeah. those people. My favorite part of that, that show was, uh, it was like catered. It was a college show. Yeah. And um, so we did all the catering through the college, and they gave me these this gigantic bowl of pretzels. Like, put your arms out as wide, as far as they can go, like <laughs> as you're just stretching your arms straight, and now just curve them ever so slightly. And imagine a bowl that large, full of tiny pretzels. <laughs> um, like, it took two people to carry this bowl. I don't know yeah. what it could possibly have been for. And so we show up, and uh, Airborne Radar's there. And um, immediately they start smoking weed. And, like, I was like, there's, like, actual cops at Purchase. Like, yeah. they're not campus security. They're state yeah. troopers. They will fucking arrest you. And it's right opposite the police station. Like, I can see the police. Like, cops are walking by. And they're like, oh, okay, we won't smoke weed. <laughs> and, and by that, they, I think they just meant, like, go smoke it outside. So now mm. that they walk even closer to the cops, inside, so would be like, no, 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 no. And then luckily, like, we brought him into the, we we're like, just smoke backstage. If you're going to smoke, I don't care. But just keep in mind that you will get arrested. Um, and then, like, they see the catering and they notice, like, this insane <laughs> ball of pretzels. And me and Pete instantly are like, oh, we saw on a message board that Arab and loves pretzels. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> and then Pete was just like, you do love pretzels, right? And I think that like, he said it in this way that made them think that like we went through all this trouble and they're like, oh yeah, we love pretzels. And then like they like picked up and like ate one and they were like, and he just went, keep eating. <laughs> kept eating. There was more pretzels than any four people could ever possibly eat. And then I, every time we would go back into the green room throughout the night, they'd be like, oh, hey, these pretzels are great, man. Thanks so much. We love pretzels. <laughs> And then uh, later that night, I told them, like, we just made that pretzel shit up. And they're like, dude, I was so excited to find the message board you were talking about. (laughs) (laughs) That was the first time I ever saw a band bring their own lights. Mm. And it really, like, was a game changer for me. Because, like, you know, everyone had the same stage lights. Oh, yeah, they had the, like, construction They had those construction yellow lights, and they were underlit. And, like, I don't know, it just just instantly put them in their own dirt. They took a room where I'd seen... 100 shows throughout like the three or four years I was there at the time and it instantly became a new place yeah and I kept thinking about how important it was to have your own lights and that's why I would like bring a suitcase full of fucking light bulbs wrapped in t-shirts on yeah, the bus. yeah you know yeah. what I mean which looking back I used to fly with floodlights wrapped in shirts like I did Bonnaroo with fucking floodlights wrapped in t-shirts because I was so fucking stupid and stubborn like, I have to do my own lights like you couldn't see shit. They're like a hundred watt bulbs, and like yeah. you know, playing like right before Dead Mouse, who's got like the most gigantic light. He's got multiple semi trucks full of lights, and I was like, yeah. "Don't worry, I bought four blue lights and four red lights and four green lights, and I got them at Home Depot. These lights are new." Um, but did it? Were you just like dark? Basically? Yeah, it looked like shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why uh, most festivals when I'm like, "But I've upped the stage game." They're like, "No." Yeah, um, yeah. You were a clown for most of your career. <laughs> but uh, I didn't want to lose the do-it-yourself aspect of it. Yeah. And I didn't have the money for a lighting person. or yeah. like, And I'd been doing my own lighting for so long, and I was just, 
it was also like such a grind, like tour after tour after tour after tour that I never like stopped it. I remember the first time I heard about a tour manager, I was already like on my second big album tour. Do you know right, what I mean? It was right, on right. the Bronx tour. I was like, so there's someone who comes on the tour and just like makes sure everything goes right? Yeah, yeah. And I remember emailing my booking agent being like, I think I'm going to email all the venues before we show up to tell them like what we're going to do. And he's <laughs> right. like, yeah, that's called advancing. Like, you don't already do that? You just show up? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, so you just show up at venues and you're like, I'm going to play on the floor in the audience at this sold out show. And I've got uh, glass light bulbs everywhere that I tape to a mic stand. And I ask an audience member to hold. <laughs> um, and I think that's where like, my stress addiction came from because I was so obsessed with creating like uh when people, as soon as someone said like it couldn't be done, I was like, "Oh, but are you sure? <laughs> I'm quite sure it can be done." Um, and just trying to find ways to, but then it stopped being enjoyable and started becoming just about the stress. It was like you know, like when you like something stressful ends and you get this like, ah, oh, you know what I mean? Like I feel like Wartscape was the same thing. Wartscape started as this like fun thing, and then it being like, "Well, if we had hundred bands, what if we had two hundred bands? And yeah, what if we have? What if we don't?" buy anything we just build it all ourselves or we don't rent anything and we just right. you know and it just became like i just became obsessed with like logistical impracticality that like it started becoming like what i like thrived in but i didn't then it shifted and became just like the thing that i used to love most like performing and like making music became this just like stressful activity well yeah which i, I feel like is with this last record i finally recognized and stopped oh that's and awesome. it became I saw this Bill Murray clip. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's him at like the Toronto Film Festival last year. And um, he's just like, super simple advice. And I feel like this speaks to how ignorant and stupid I am. But he was just like, you're the very best at what you're doing when you're very, very relaxed. Yeah. No matter what you're doing. And I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm speaking to like to the most relaxed man I've ever met in my life. <laughs> um, but I, what, I, you know, I'm, I always felt like I would get, I'd make my best decisions in like a burning building or like, I do think I act well under pressure, but not if it's constant pressure. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I feel like I'd be a good general in a pretty boring war, but I, I'd, <laughs> I would be a bad general in a long intent, like trench warfare. I would have just been like, guys, let's start digging a trench away from these assholes. This <laughs> yeah. sucks. But in a, I don't know, like some sort of like space war. I'd be like, yeah, we can take this one battle every five years. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah. But then I started doing these like space trench warfare, which doesn't make any sense. Then you'd have to like hide in these like little black holes or something. Um, and I just, my whole life revolved around it. And then I, this Bill Murray quote about being relaxed. And I started realizing like my idea of relaxed really shifted after I got a cell phone um, or a smartphone rather. Um, because I was never really bored. I was always just killing time where I feel like boredom is one of the most important things you can have as an artist yeah it's because your mind can actually wander and you're, yeah if you're just like sitting around just like constantly looking at like people's lunch or what they're doing on Instagram like you're never really thinking you're just like yeah. it's the same as if I was just watching TV all the time except the TV show are just still images like when I kept thinking about that I kept thinking like I hated TV to the point where like Young and not young in life, but like in college, I was like, well, I don't want a TV. It just wastes my time. Yeah. But then when I got a smartphone, I was doing the same thing. And now I keep thinking like when I'm on Facebook, be it my phone or my laptop, I'm like, if this was on TV, I wouldn't watch this. 
Like I wouldn't absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like wouldn't like if I had to like navigate it like with a remote control, I wouldn't right. be like. Let's see heights. Photos. <laughs> right. All right. What's he been? Oh, cool. There's one grunge is tagged in that. Let's see what grunge is up to. Yeah. Okay. This sucks. Let's watch yeah. anything else. But on my and I feel like I'm always like searching for something. Like I'm gonna like find the internet, the real internet. Yeah. Like by like. Well, if I just click all these links, I'll find something awesome. Yeah. But um, like a, I could easily do that like with a book. Right. right or right. with a walk around. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to get off my, because I think about those early tours that we were on and like the driver always has one advantage of that all they can do is drive and think. Yeah. Which, and, which I love. Yeah. yeah. And like, and I was a passenger, but um, I, you know, like I said, I never got a license as I'm sure you're well aware of more than most. <laughs> um, yes. But I also never had a phone. And on those early tours, I didn't bring a laptop. So I would just be sitting there and either have a book that I'd borrow from you. I'm too big of an idiot to bring a book. Um, or I would just have to sit there and think. And I feel like that's when, like, I was the most active. Yeah. And, and yeah. in early Wham City, I didn't, like, since that, my computer got smashed, I'd have to use Pete's computer. Yeah. So when Pete was home, I couldn't go in his room because he was jacking off. So mm. I had to exclusively, uh, sorry, Pete, but we know it's true. I'd, you should check your history. Um, uh, God, and when I would work on music in while Pete was at work, he'd come back and change all the song titles. <laughs> and so it'd take me for fucking ever. Like, he'd change the region files to just be like, Pete's dick. <laughs> <laughs> Photos of Pete's dick. <laughs> Stuff like that. And, like, move them to folders. Um, it was pretty funny. <laughs> but it did really, like, uh, I lost a lot of tracks because I didn't know where they were. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think, like I said, boredom's important and actually relaxing. Actually being, like, not just like wasting. There's a difference between being bored and wasting time, or yeah. like doing something and killing time. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And time is life. Yes. Why would you waste it if you know that? Yeah. Your performance at Warscape that was like the Bronx mm-hmm. tour. That was a moment where I felt like Dan is really going in on this like stress. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that was the that was the pinnacle of it. Like half the show is like. No, Chester, over there, like, like on you were on the mic. Yeah, no, a lot, and it was easy for me to like block that out of my mind. But there was a lot of it because I didn't, and I had no, I didn't care about professionalism. Right, I, I I was taking people out of the show, and it was taking me out of the show. Like there were times, like nothing went wrong at Lollapalooza, so that was in my mind like the best show I've ever done. Yeah, Um, but I played like festivals of equal size where like you know there'd be like thirty thousand people, and I'd be like. Benny, that's not the part. <laughs> These monitors suck. What's going on? When I should have just been like, I'm in heaven. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, it would be like if I was in heaven and I was like, there's no more shrimp cocktail. My bed is not as comfortable as promised. <laughs> and it was just like, I needed everything to be perfect. Um, but there was no way it possibly could have been. It's not like right. I really wanted it perfect. I just wanted it to be, I was just... I was lost in the stress, and I didn't see that. Yeah. And I do think I lost a lot of, like, I did one show at the Troubadour, where they wouldn't turn off the Troubadour sign. Is that in, uh, in L.A.? Okay. And it was like, I didn't know anything about the venue's history, and, like, they were like, well, you know, like, Tom Petty never asked us to turn off the Troubadour sign. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, he wasn't working with these fucking goofy-ass light bulbs. <laughs> I need these lights. I was like, I'll put it on a switch. I'll turn it on and off. And yeah. they were like. Uh, there's no way we're going to give you the on and off switch for the Troubadour sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're like, 
uh, Stevie Nicks never had a problem with the Troubadour sign. I was like, yeah. she didn't have the stupid skull strobe light. Right, it looks right, right. it looks awesome with the lights off. Can you turn it off? At least like during the show. Yeah. And then I remember after my publicist being like, you just did like a sold out show at the Troubadour and all you did was talk about how the Troubadour sign was on. <laughs> like, What's wrong with you? Yeah. And I just didn't, you know, I didn't recognize. And then literally that next night I like dislocated my shoulder. And then I had to finish that most stressful tour while also in like constant pain and in a sling. Yeah. Which wasn't the first time I'd done a tour in a sling, but those early right. house shows were like, like I said, like we'd roll up at like seven and be like, yeah. oh, you're going to play at 10 and here's all the beer and anything you could ever want yeah. until then. Um, but I don't know. I just became obsessed with the stress and I, it was, it was, it was like an addiction and I didn't realize it. And then luckily this Bill Murray, and the, you know, Al said something to me the other day that really like blew my mind. And just, you know, there's like just hearing the word relax, yeah. like saying how you're better at something when you're relaxed really changed my mind. Al just said like, make peace with yourself. Cause I was now, cause like ever since I've learned how to relax, I've been so angry that I haven't been like relaxing <laughs> for like years. I was like, I should have been, oh, yeah. if I was relaxed in 2009, I would be I don't know what I'd be. Um, uh, I don't know. So now I'm trying to like make peace with myself. Does that yeah. make any sense? No, definitely. These simple definitely. phrases really like change the way I think. Because I also like electronic music changed a lot. Like while I was in that period, and I was so obsessed with it being acoustic, while everyone else was being like as obsessed with being like DJs. Yeah. And I wanted nothing less than to be a DJ because in my mind, DJ meant clubs and. I guess DJs still do mean that. Like, you don't go to, like, an EDM show and, and expect people to be, like, anything besides, like, bros or, like, yeah. fuzzy boots and shit. Um, I don't know. But I feel like electronic music shifted and I didn't realize it. Not that I would have, like, changed my style, but I think it would have been easier to... Because I still, like, fall... Like, when I play a festival, if I play, like, on a stage with a bunch of, like, indie rock bands, I'm, like, the DJ. But when I play on a DJ stage, I'm like the indie rock band. Yeah. Do you know what I yeah. mean? And I don't know, maybe if that like has a lot to do with a lot of my, like They Might Be Giants, I feel like sell, fell into the same world where they were like the performance art group or the rock band, but never yeah. to the performance art groups or the rock bands. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I remember one time um, you first saying the phrase, stress addiction you're like i think maybe i have a stress addiction <laughs> and, and jeremy just saying like he's like i find it really hard to believe that you don't already know that <laughs> <laughs> no i remember that it was on the america tour right yeah 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 i never i never thought that you could be addicted to stress yeah um but i mean it changes you know the chemicals in your brain like anything yeah. else and you get addicted to that and you get addicted to the release of it the stress either ending or building, um, I don't know. I guess maybe it's like kind of that might come with wanting to go into these like whatever bigger venues mm -hmm. and maintaining the I, I do honesty think, or you know what I mean? It was more like, of a stubbornness than an honesty though. Okay. Like at some point I should have played on the stage. Yeah. Like yeah, and I yeah. think about like how when I'm you know, if I'm playing to a thousand people and I'm on the floor, like maybe the first two hundred can get down. Yeah. Um, but then everyone else in the room, I feel like, would be disenfranchised. And I never realized right. that because I never saw the scope of it because I was always on the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in my mind, like, everyone was going crazy. And then I'd see photos and it would be like, you could see, like, it was like, it looked like a, like a, a you like dropped a rock in water. Yeah. And it would be like still the farther away from where the rock was. Now when I play on the stage, I can connect with people in the back 
and they also get into it. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't know. It's just, uh, it was, I'm, I'd be a fool to say I wouldn't go back and do things differently. Do you know what I mean? But I do think all of this in performance wise, I feel like I made a lot of mistakes. But I do feel like those things informed my music, and I'm very happy where I am yeah. compositionally. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Totally. And I think it's also good to always go back and look at your older work and see where the mistakes are. Mm. Like, I remember when I was scoring the film for Coppola, he was like, once I finish a movie and it premieres, I never watch it again. And at first I was like, oh, that's awesome. And then afterwards I was like, it's a terrible idea. Mm. Like, how else? He's like, because all I'll see are the mistakes. So he's never watched, like, Apocalypse Now again? He watched it when he did the re-edit. But he's never seen <laughs> like the re-edit again. Um, but I feel like it's like whenever I'm making a new record, I go back and listen to the old ones, and I'm like, "Well, I like this part of it, but why yeah. the fuck did I do that?" And like, yeah. "How could I do that?" Or like, I'll watch live videos, and I'll be like, "This, why this part sucks?" You know, because right, I mean? right, in my right. head, like at the show, it'll be like, "Oh, this is awesome," because I'll have this like euphoric feeling, and then yeah. I'll like listen to it, and I'll be like, "No, I don't ever want to hear that again." Yeah, yeah. But um, so I think it's important to go back and critique your own work. Yeah. Um, and just, and but also to remember the headspace you were in when you were making it, because obviously, like, the experiences since then are gonna, you know, color and affect the process that you're in currently. But uh, am I making any sense? Yeah, definitely. Cool. So is this new album like? Would you say it's influenced by this new like way of thinking? Kind of. Uh, I feel like I. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it started being like me trying to because I was, I was like, I'm gonna make the whole record myself. Yeah. And it's been the first time since Spider-Man where I've done that. Yeah. Um, I've been working with Chester, and we've been constantly growing. You know, America had like 30, excuse me, some odd people on it. And it became like such a massive undertaking. Yeah. And I really wanted to make this one not that, but I also wanted it to be, I realized it was insane to try to like, after having no experience really doing it, like, uh, to do it myself. But it really, at some point, it became fun. And in a non-stressful fun. It yeah. became just like, oh, this is... And then I saw that Bill Murray clip, like, midway through the mix. And I was like, oh, he's right. Yeah. I shouldn't be, like... I stopped worrying about when I was going to finish it. I stopped worrying about, like, if it was perfect. I just started worrying about if I liked it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because at one point, I was, like, this one track called Learning to Relax. I had, like... 80 different versions and of each of those versions i had like 20 different like sessions yeah and i was like going back and like, well i like this one i don't like that one da, 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 da. and like it was i was just overthinking it um and that's where chester was very helpful because he would be like no that's good let's move on yeah you know what i mean and then i feel like that's where i figured out how to actually self-produce and and be able to be like this is a good take i like this if i like it tomorrow we're keeping it yeah um but a lot of it's like a lot of the lyrics are about like stress and anxiety or dying or like trying to figure out what consciousness is. Yeah. And I feel like that was informed by the process of stress. And I was recording a lot of it or, uh, or tracking vocals on the road since the Arcade Fire Tour came up in August and we didn't know we were going to get it. Yeah. So I was like mixing in hotel rooms afterwards. Like we'd, you know, get a hotel room and we'd, I'd ask for like as many extra pillows and blankets as they would get. And we'd go into the bathroom. And, like, dismantle it, like, take out anything that rattled, like, take the vent off of the, you know, the fan and shove it up with towels and then, like, stack the pillows in the corners for bass traps and across the uh, shower curtain just, like, layer these comforters. Yeah. Um, to give it a pretty, like, dead sort of vibe. Yeah. And then try to, like, track vocals in there. And that was fun. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> it was also Sounds... insane. I should, but I didn't want to lose the momentum of recording. I had been in the studio oh, totally. for like two months yeah. before that. And I knew if I took a month off for tour, it would take me another month to get back in the groove and another month to actually do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So on every day off, we'd rent a different studio. Or if there wasn't a studio, like when we were in like a weird zone, just do it in the hotel room. I keep saying we, because um, Al and McMinn were there and they would help set shit up. Oh, thanks. Um, <clears throat> except if there's a real studio, I would just, and then it's one time we were in LA and they all went to the beach and I just wanted to go to the beach so bad. And I, I think that's when I realized like, and Jeremy said to me, like, you're a musician in a recording studio. You should be really happy about it. Mm. And I was like, yeah. I should. He's, he's like, I would love to be recording today. I'm going to go to the beach with everyone else. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> don't see it as a bad thing. Yeah. You know, because I, I had this, like, fear of missing out. Yeah, yeah, Which I feel yeah. like is, like, everyone's way of saying, like, I'm constantly scared. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm constantly yeah. scared that, like, my I've made poor life decisions and I'm not doing what I should be doing, so I fear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, I, you know, that was right around the same time I saw that clip, and it really, like, I never wanted to do anything else. I just wanted to go to the studio exclusively. Yeah. And I didn't want to finish making the record either. I just wanted to keep doing it, because I worried about what I was going to do once I stopped. Yeah. Well, I don't have this cell phone. Do you have this time? I'm yes. just trying to make sure we're not going over. Here. It is two. Oh, shit. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. Exactly um, two. Oh, sweet. Well, thank you so much, man. Oh, hi, man. Anytime. All right. All right, thanks a lot to Dan for coming on. Um, you might have been confused when we started talking about ice cream cones. Uh, we're making a reference to the sound collage put together by Chunklet Magazine called Having Fun with Fugazi, where they diss hecklers in the crowd for eating ice cream cones. If you want to do any further research, that's it. Thanks to Dan. See you next week.